We want you to read God's word with us. The three uh, chapters of Romans that we have studied so far as Paul the Apostle, he brings us truth concerning the spiritual condition of man. That is that we are lost spiritually. We are guilty before God. And Paul making this indictment in chapter 1 and chapter 2, moving into chapter Three, he summed up this indictment against all of mankind in verse 19 of chapter 3, that all the world may become guilty before God. Whether you are circumcised or uncircumcised, whether Jew or Gentile, we have all sinned. But then in verse 21 last week of chapter 3, we saw this wonderful transition that went from the indictment against mankind because all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. There is none that is righteous and no, not one. And God being a just God and a holy God, he will judge all sin. He will bring his wrath upon all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Verse 18 of chapter 1 tells us, as Paul began to indict all of mankind, that we're all guilty. But then in verse 21, but we have this wonderful transition that comes to us from the judgment of man that comes to now the justification of man that comes through Jesus Christ. And again, the doctrine of justification, as we talk about that term justification, that it means being declared righteous. Um, it is a legal term. It literally means just as if I've never sinned. And Paul began to develop this wonderful truth that we do have justification being declared righteous before God. It, it comes, first of all, apart from the law, verse 21 of chapter three. Second of all, we discuss it is being declared righteous um, through faith in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, as verse 22 tells us as well, that it is to all and on all who believe. And then fourthly, the fourth point that we need to understand in this doctrine of justification is that we are justified freely by his grace. So Paul is telling us that God who is just and the justifier we believe in him. In other words, I don't declare who's just. I don't say, hey, I'm just before God because I'm a good person. Or that person over there is just because they're a good person. We are not the justifier. He is just. He is the justifier. It, it is being declared justified as we believe in him, put our faith in the finished work of the cross. He then declares us righteous, justified. And we are justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law, believing that the Lord has provided for you and for me forgiveness of sin. You've heard me say many times that the greatest need of any man or any woman is to be forgiven of sin. That we have salvation that comes through Jesus Christ and faith in him. It's apart from anything that we do. It is based on what he did on Calvary's cross as he made propitiation. We saw that word for our sins. Making atonement for our sins. He, he was the satisfaction, the, the satisfaction of a righteous God, uh, of the righteous requirement for sinful man that came through Jesus' death on the cross. So last week we looked very carefully, beginning to look at this doctrine of justification that Paul began to develop and will continue to do so as we now move into chapter 4. We conclude at chapter 3, as Paul would say in verse 31. Let me read it to you again before we move into the fourth chapter. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. 
that. On the contrary, we establish the law. So Paul states to the person who may ask, if we are justified by faith alone and not by the law, what good then is the law? You have made it void. And Paul says, no, not at all. Uh, I'm saying that justification comes by faith. And in that, we are establishing the law. And now as we move into chapter 4, Paul is going to build on that thought that we're not voiding the law, but we're fulfilling the very reason for which it was given. And that being that you realize that you can't keep the law. None of us. We've already been indicted. We've all gone astray. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. There is none that is righteous. And in that, then the law has done its job. The purpose of the law is to show us that we can't keep the law. And then we need the Savior, Jesus Christ. And Paul really makes that case when he, you go to the book of Galatians in chapter 3, that we're told that the law was to be a schoolmaster or a tutor to point us to Jesus Christ. Christ. And so to the Jewish mind, to the Hebrew reader who would read what Paul has declared in chapter 3 and then begin to scratch their head, begin to wonder, begin to perhaps question and want to debate, you mean that justification comes not by keeping of the law, that it's apart from the law? It's not by being religious. It's not by keeping a ceremonial and, and moral law. It's not by celebrating the feast. It's not by the sacrifices. It's not by keeping the holy days that a person is pronounced righteous if he or she believes in what the Lord did for them on Calvary's cross, that he rose from the grave, that justification is based not on what I do, it's based on who he is and what he did for me on Calvary's cross. Is that really true? So Paul here, anticipating that, he's going to show his readers that this is not something new. This is not something I'm making up. This is not my opinion. This is not an original thought. What I have declared in chapter 3, and Paul does this as he points to two individuals, two very important people in Hebrew history, in Jewish history, and that is Abraham, who is uh, considered the father of the nation, and then also David, who is the greatest king that Israel ever had. So Paul, in proving his point from the scriptures that what I am saying is not new, I'm not making this up, this is not my revelation, it has been declared, this justification through faith from the very beginning. Look to Abraham. Look at Abraham. Let's look at his life and see what Abraham did to be declared righteous before God as well as David. So let's begin to read that in chapter 4 of Romans in verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. The Jews would boast that they were descendants of Abraham. We see that in the Gospels, particularly when you read John chapter 8. So Paul points out this very highly well-known, esteemed man in their history and says, was Abraham justified by works? If he was, then, uh, you know, he could boast. He would have reason to be proud of himself. But not before God, Paul adds. And he's picking up and he's adding to what he wrote in verse 27 of the previous chapter, that boasting is going to be excluded in heaven. In other words, when we are presented before his presence with exceeding joy, when we go to heaven and we 
or standing before the Lord. We will not be able to boast about our works and our religiousness and my spirituality and my piety and look what I did, Lord. We're going to be in his glory. It's going to be so incredible. And how dare we say, well, Lord, look what I did. I was such a good person. Or I did this to earn salvation. Or I was so religious, I deserve to be here. There's going to be none of that that's going to take place. And Paul, building on that, he says in verse 3, For what does the scripture say? That Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So as he's proven his point here, he says, When did God say to Abraham, you're righteous? Was it when he did some kind of work? No, it wasn't. It wasn't when God called Abraham from his father's house there in Genesis chapter 12. You know the story that God came to Abraham and said, leave your father's house and leave the area of the earth, the Chaldeans, and go to the place that I'm going to show you. And that's what Abraham did. He heard the voice of the Lord. He heard the call of God on his life. He went home and he said, Sarah, pack your bags. The true and the living God spoke to me and told me that we need to leave and, and we need to begin a journey. I'm sure that Sarah was probably asking, well, where are we going to go? I don't know. He's going to show it to us. He'll show us where to go. And at that point, did God say, wow, Abraham, you went, even though I didn't tell you where you're going to go. Was he declared righteous in chapter 12? Or was he declared righteous in chapter 14 when it was his nephew Lot that was taken off in the captivity as well as those in the Jordan Valley there? You can read the story. And Abraham gathered 318 of his servants and he went and he rescued his nephew Lot. Was it there in chapter 14 that Abraham was declared righteous? No. Was he declared righteous when he was circumcised, him and his household, in chapter 17? No. God declared Abraham righteous in Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 and we see that's where Paul is quoting from in verse 3 here of Romans chapter 4 and what happened was is that God came to Abraham and said I'm going to give you a son and your offspring is going to be like the, the stars of heaven like the grains of sand on the seashore and you will be a great nation Abraham and Paul taking the reader to the scriptures, to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And at that time that God gave a promise, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So when was it that Abraham was declared righteous and justified? When he believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. For you and for me today, when is a person saved? When we perhaps do good things for the Lord. Maybe we're serving the Lord in some way. We're helping out others in practical ways. Is it when I am baptized? If I worship on a certain day? If I take a communion? If I join a church? When I'm in fellowship with other believers? When I hear a Bible study? As good as those things can be, it doesn't bring salvation. And we are being told, and it's being emphasized to us, that righteousness being declared justified comes when, like Abraham, I simply say in my heart, I believe you, Lord. I believe what you say is true, and that I am righteous in Jesus Christ. He's the one that died for me. He's the one that died for my sins. And I believe that he's alive. And I come to him, I repent, and ask him to be my Savior and Lord. And I thank you, Lord. 
And that's when we can enjoy our salvation. So Paul bringing out from the scripture that Abraham was declared righteous when he believed God, a righteousness obtained by faith. Let's continue in verse 4. And verse 4 is a very important verse. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as a debt. But to him who does not work, verse 5 says, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. If Abraham had been declared righteous because of his works, then he would have been given salvation as a reward. Now, we see it worked out like this, perhaps an example, that I have a job, I, I work for somebody, and I do that job, and compensation is what I get for what I do. I earn a wage, I earn a salary, uh, I, I get compensation for the work that I do for somebody. Now, if salvation worked that way, God would be paying off a debt to our works. Hey, you've really earned this. And Paul is saying, no. It isn't by what Abraham did in his works that justified Abraham, but it was by believing God and believing on him. So Romans, after declaring that all of mankind is guilty and, and lost, we're all sinners, chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul now says that the law is established in that we haven't kept the law. And it is by faith in Christ Jesus that we have justification and we can't do acts or works to earn that salvation. It is by grace. Again, we are justified freely by his grace, by faith uh, in Jesus Christ. It is not as a debt that God owes to us because of our works. Now, as we go through this, keep in the back of your mind, and we'll get into it more as we continue, even in this chapter, but particularly when we get to chapters 6 through 8, because then we're going to see that Paul's going to talk about the doctrine of sanctification. Now that you are saved, this is how you live for the Lord, to walk in the Spirit. We walk in a newness of life. Paul is not saying this so that we can be disobedient or lazy or sluggish spiritually or not have a desire to serve the Lord. He is saying that those things won't bring salvation. And there's going to be no boasting in heaven in what I did to earn salvation. In other words, when we stand before the God, we're not going to say, Alleluia, me. There's going to be none of that in heaven. And as you believe and enjoy the Lord, then that faith responding to God's grace, his love in your heart will cause you to want to serve him. It will cause you to want to pray, to walk in obedience, to live for him, to live godly in Christ Jesus, to be one that the reality of Jesus Christ is being worked out in your speech and in your behavior, in your conduct, in your faith, in your purity. Our work should be an outward expression of a heart that has become new in Christ, an inward reality that God has saved us and changed us. No longer wanting to live after the, the world and live the old life. We've left all of that. The old ways, the old hangout. But Lord, your grace is so awesome. Your love is so great. And what you have done on Calvary's cross for me. And I believe and I give my life to you. And the outward works in our prayers and reading our Bibles and obedience and coming and being in fellowship with believers is because it shows what has happened inwardly in my heart because of faith. Lord, you've made me alive spiritually. If I base my relationship with God on the basis of works, then I'll think that, God, you are a debtor to me and you owe me. 
I did this. I performed that. So I've earned salvation. I've earned your love. I've earned your approval. And when a person thinks that they can do enough works to earn salvation, then they say, Lord, you owe me because of that work. And then they are saying that your death on the cross, Jesus, was not sufficient. It did not complete the work. What you said from the cross is not true, that it is finished. Te telestai is what Jesus would cry out. It's an accounting term. It means paid in full. The work is done. It's been completed, what he did for us to bring forgiveness and to bring salvation to you and to me. He rose from the grave, validating what he did on Calvary's cross and proving that he's the son of God. We're going to have no boasting. There's going to be no pride in heaven. There's going to be none of that in heaven. That salvation is the work that God has done for you and for me. So Paul is pressing this point. This is what the scripture has always showed. Using Abraham to prove his point. This is not a new idea from using scripture to show you. The one who believes on him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Look at Abraham, his example. And then Paul brings out his second example in verse 6. Number 2 is David, of course. David well known, the greatest king that Israel ever had. As we read, just as David also describes, the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So Paul now points to David. Of course, David was one that committed sin. He committed murder. He committed adultery. He knew what it was like to be a guilty sinner. He knew the seriousness of sin. He experienced the consequences of sin. But he also knew how good it was to be forgiven. And Paul writes that David knew and describes that God imputes righteousness apart from works. David knew that and said, Blessed is the man whom God imputes righteousness apart from work. And quoting from Psalm 32, blessed are how happy is the man who is forgiven. David knew of God's mercy and grace, of God's forgiveness. And that's what truly made David happy. Blessed. That's what the word means, how happy. How happy, how blessed is the man who is forgiven. David did not say how happy is the one who has power. David had great power and prestige as the king of Israel. He did not say, blessed is the one who has great popularity. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, as David walked through the towns of Israel, the women sang songs about him. He didn't say, blessed is the man who has great gifts and talents. He was a worship leader. He was very articulate. The, the Psalms that he wrote, of course, inspired by the Spirit of God, absolutely amazing. He had such talents of being a great warrior. He killed giants. When he was a shepherd boy, he killed lions and bears with his sling. He didn't say how blessed is the one who has great riches. He was wealthy. He had wives. He had servants. But David was blessed in his heart because he knew that his sins were forgiven. It's interesting, when you go through the book of Psalms, 150 Psalms, we went through it a couple years ago. It took us a year and a half to go through it on Wednesday night. 
But as we're going through those psalms, at least half of those psalms are written by David. 74, if you want to get technical, the 150. But probably more of those psalms that don't have a, uh, somebody ascribed and writing to it were written by David, it is believed. And it's interesting that when you look at the psalms written by David, before his sin with Bathsheba, he talks about walking in righteousness. He talks about no vanity that is in his life. He talks about the integrity of his heart and all of this. But the tone changes after his sin with Bathsheba. You see it not only in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. He talks a lot about God's forgiveness and his mercy and his grace. And David says, happy is the man who's not trying to, to prove his worth, on his own righteousness, but rather happy is the one whose sins are covered and to the one that the Lord shall not impute sin. You see, his thinking changed. His tone changed. Now he says that my happiness is based upon the Lord's goodness and grace, not upon my togetherness. And it's like Paul is saying to the reader who may be questioning this doctrine of justification. Look, look, he says, you can see it in the scriptures all the way back to the beginning. When Abraham just believed God and when David realizes need to be forgiven, that is where righteousness is. That is where salvation is found. We continue reading now in verse 9. Does the blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. So he's, he's affirming this point. He, he's establishing, listen, the scriptures, Abraham was declared righteous by God in Genesis chapter 15. This is important. Some 14 years before God instructed Abraham to be circumcised in Genesis 17. Which means that Abraham was justified by faith, not by ritual. That was very important for the Jewish reader to understand. It was very important also for the Gentile reader to understand. You see, again, to the Jews who thought that they were justified because they were circumcised. We cut ourselves. We are marked. We're God's covenant people. Paul said, you better think again. It's not the case. That he was declared righteous before circumcision. And of course, Jeremiah, he talks about you're to be circumcised of heart. And, and that cutting away of the flesh was just to be an outward expression, expression of what have, should have been taking place in your hearts. Now, to the Gentiles, it was important for them to understand this as well. Because in the early church, when Paul began his missionary journeys, and on that first missionary journey, he established the churches in Galatia. And it would be the Judaizers coming up from Jerusalem behind Paul's ministry, and they would say to those Gentile believers who had given their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that they said, that's all fine and dandy what Paul is telling you. Just put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But if you really want to be saved, you also have to be cut. You have to be circumcised. And that was a big problem. And Paul, writing to the Galatian churches, he right away begins that epistle by saying, and matter of fact, it's the first epistle that Paul wrote that we have recorded in the New Testament. He says, I marvel that you turn away from the gospel to another, which is not the gospel. What has begun in the spirit, are you going to try to perfect in the flesh by cutting away of the flesh? And they needed to understand that it wasn't that way. 
Matter of fact, when you look at the early church, when the Jerusalem Council took place in Acts chapter 15, here comes Paul and Silas and, and the guys from Antioch. They come cruising up to Jerusalem, and there's Peter and James and those guys. And the Pharisees, some of the Pharisees got saved that you read about in Acts chapter 15. There in Jerusalem, they have this, this council, this meeting. What are we going to tell these Gentile believers? That they have to be circumcised? And it was the Pharisees that said, not only do they have to be circumcised, but they have to keep the law of Moses. So Paul makes it very clear once again, whether Jew or Gentile, it is salvation by faith, not by a ritual or by works or by keeping the law. We continue reading in verse 11. For he received a sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe. Though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So the Jews in Paul's day would boast, as you know, as I've already mentioned, because we're Abraham's descendants. We've been circumcised. They would particularly say that to Jesus in John chapter 8. Jesus said, I know that you're Abraham's descendants, but if you were Abraham's children, then you would do the work of Abraham. What's the work of Abraham? They came to Jesus. They said, what must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus said to him, believe on the one whom the Father has sent. Believe on me. That's the work of God. And Abraham here is called the father of the uncircumcised as well as the circumcised. Now, that would be a shock for the Jewish reader of Romans here. The apostle is saying, making his case, think about this. The scripture shows it. It is faith, not circumcision, that is the vital link to Abraham. And if Abraham was declared years before the covenant of circumcision was given, then we conclude that circumcision did not bring righteousness. It confirmed righteousness. Circumcision didn't make Abraham righteous. It confirmed that he was. As a Christian, we might say today, baptism doesn't declare you to be righteous. It confirms that you are righteous. It is that believer that says that I am a believer in Jesus Christ. And I am going out to the waters. I'm not being baptized in order to be saved. It declares that I am saved. That I identify with Christ. That outward sign of an inward belief that has taken place in my heart. And you see, here's the thing. You can be baptized a thousand times. You can be kept under the water till you're wrinkled like a prune. But it won't save you. You need to believe in your heart. The basis of salvation and justification is based on believing in what he has done for you. And it's accounted for you as righteousness. So I get baptized because I want to make a public declaration that I identify with Christ. I take a communion because Jesus commanded that we are to do this in remembrance of him. The new covenant that we belong to. Uh, I, I am one that I, I go to church because the commandment is not to forsake the assembly of ourselves together. I want to be with the brethren. I, I want to be a part of the church. I want to use my gifts that you've given to me, Lord, to edify, to build up the body of Christ. I want to be a part of 
what you're doing in the kingdom. I'm excited inwardly in what you have done for me, Lord. You have forgiven me. You have changed me, given me a new heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I just marvel at your incredible goodness and grace. And I want to have devotions, not so I can earn your favor, but because I already have your favor. I want to live for you, not so that I can earn your love, but because I do have your love. So Paul is reminding us that Abraham was declared righteous long before the covenant of circumcision was given. In verse 13, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. So the law would be given to Moses some about 400 years after Abraham. So Abraham could not be justified by the law. If you could be justified by the law, if that were possible, then you'd have no need for faith. And in verse 15, it can literally be translated, the law keeps on producing wrath. Why? Because the law sets the standard. And it is not just the outward observance, but we know it's the inner heart as well. God has already been declared in Romans. Everything is open naked before him. He sees the heart. The problem is not that the law is bad. The law is good. The problem is we can't keep the law. The law doesn't declare us holy. It just shows us that we're not holy. Now, that last phrase of verse 15, for where there is no law, there's no transgression. Some people read that and they think, man, we would have been better off without the law. Then we wouldn't be guilty before God. And that is not what Paul is declaring. An example would be, out here in Weld County, a lot of open space. You got a dirt road out there. There's no speed limit posted. Then if you're driving at a reasonable speed, you're not worried about getting a ticket. You had no sign posted telling you that you went two to three miles an hour over the speed limit. Now that word transgression that we read, it literally means you come to the line and you step over that line. It means overstepping a violation of a stated or posted commandment. Sin means you missed the mark. You may be trying your best, but you still missed the mark. Transgression is, I stepped over that line. Iniquity covers all sins and and transgressions. So the law post makes clear what God desires, what he demands. But remember that it was the Jewish reader who said, well, the Gentiles, they don't have the law. And, And Paul addressing those who didn't have the law, the Gentiles, they have a conscience to know what is right or wrong and that we can't even keep that. So we are guilty. So I'm driving down that dirt road at 100 miles an hour. My conscience tells me that that's wrong. Maybe perhaps there, you know, nobody has read the Bible and said that stealing is wrong. But if they steal, there's a conscience. You know, Thursday night, somebody came and stole all the extension cords and the timers for Christmas lights outside. And I'm sure that as they were doing that, that they knew that this is wrong. Even though maybe they'd never read in the Bible what has been posted, that I shall not steal. That their conscience would tell them that it's wrong. So the law shows us just how guilty that we are. 
In verse 16, therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure of all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Faith and grace, they go together. Paul would state in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, you know the verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. So if you want to get technical about it, we are saved by God's grace, but it comes through faith. So we have faith, then we receive God's grace and salvation. So the two are yoked together, linked together, grace and faith, and that is assured to all whether they have the law or not. So Abraham is the father of us all who, who come to Jesus by faith, who believe. And then as we finish this morning, verse 17, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed. God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who uh, contrary to hope in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Simply put here that it took a supernatural work of God to make Abraham the physical father of many. When God brought that promised Abraham and Sarah. Abraham was 75 years old. Sarah, 65 years old. They didn't have any children. They had to wait 25 years for that promise to come to pass. And as they would reach the age, Abraham 100, Sarah 90 years old, that they were past the age of childbearing. And that dead womb of Sarah, God did a life-changing, life-bringing you know, work in that that her womb was open and she gave birth to Isaac and the promise came true. You see, he's likened that to you and to me. We are dead spiritually apart from Jesus Christ. Not only Romans chapter 4 declaring that, but specifically Ephesians chapter 2, that we're dead in our trespasses. But God, because of his great love, has made us alive unto Jesus Christ. And as we come to him, that's where we're born again spiritually by the Spirit of God. We pass from being spiritually dead. You see, those people around you that you care about, that you love, that you perhaps live with, family members, that perhaps live next to you, your neighbors, that you work alongside of, those of, are friends that you've known for years, that those who don't know Jesus Christ are spiritually dead and God wants to do a life-changing work in them to bring them alive. And that's why Paul says that it, the gospel of Christ is the power of God for salvation, that we become alive, spiritually alive because of his great love. You are alive spiritually. I know that when I got saved, everything changed. The way I looked at things, you know, all of a sudden to realize that I was forgiven was such a burden that was lifted from me. And, and God's still working in me. But that life came into my heart and the sky was bluer. You know, everything was just the joy that I'd never experienced before. I didn't realize how dead I was. And I know many of you have that same testimony. And what I hope and pray a couple things, we're going to close here in just a minute, is number one, that as you have become alive spiritually in that work that God has done, again, God, that salvation is God's work in you, that you would enjoy him, desire to live for him, 
abound in your love for him more and in your faith and knowing this, that he is going to do that work as you just, just walk with him and enjoy him. And the things that you do should be an outward expression because he has made me alive. And then second of all, that you give that message to others. That Jesus is your life. If you come to him, he will make you alive. And he will forgive you. And he'll give you the promise of eternal life and access and relationship to the Father. It comes by faith in him and what he has done for you and dying on the cross for you and declaring it is finished. So, Father, we thank you for these verses. And very important for us to be established in the truth of the scriptures that, Lord, that we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. He did the work. And as we have come in faith, trusting him, that is accounted to us for righteousness. And in that righteousness, now we desire to live a right life for you. But Lord, it's because we love you, because you've made us alive, that supernatural work of saving us and forgiving us. And Father, I do pray this morning, if there is anyone here um, in the sanctuary, in the coffee shop, listening on live stream, whatever the case may be, that you have not given your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you thought that coming to church was good enough. Maybe you thought, you know, while I was raised in a Christian home, that that's good enough. Maybe you think, well, I've listened to a Bible study, or I think I've been a good person. I've done more good works than bad works. That is not what brings you salvation. It is you recognizing you need to be forgiven. You're a sinner. You're guilty before God, just like all of us were. And Jesus Christ is your salvation. And to turn to him, repent. That's what the word means. Change direction and call out to him. And surrender your life to him. Believe in him. That he died on the cross for your sins. That he's alive. And he's calling you to do that. There might be somebody here that you think, well, I've sinned so much you could never forgive me. He died for all of your sins. And whosoever, and I like that word, whosoever, because that includes Anyone who is willing to come to Jesus Christ calls on the name of Jesus shall be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If that's you, today is the day of salvation. He's calling you right now to believe that he died for your sins and he rose again, that he is your forgiveness and salvation. You can do that right where you're sitting. Sincerely in your heart, he'll hear your heart. He sees your heart. That Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me. I confess that I am a sinner, and I now turn to you. Forgive me. Forgive me of my sins. And I believe that you're alive because you're speaking to my heart. And I ask that you sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for bringing me this life-giving, changing truth and this new beginning now being a part of the family of God and I want to know you and walk with you and enjoy you help me to just stay close to you and know of you all the days of my life I, I want to be conformed to the image of Jesus day by day do that work in my heart and in my life in Jesus name and listen, if anybody prayed that prayer, we got a prayer team up front. In just a minute, we're going to close. I want you to come up. 
tell them the decision you made so we can pray for you and encourage you and for all of us that we would leave here. And I pray that this Christmas season that we would keep Jesus in the forefront of our Christmas activities and all the things that we do in our lives, that we would share with others that Jesus came to this world for a purpose, that, that a, a child was given, that there was a virgin that conceived and bore a son, his name, Emmanuel, God with us. And he came for a purpose of dying for our sins and given this lost world hope and us hope. And that we would give that light, that message of peace and goodwill and joy that only comes from you. And in this weekend of Thanksgiving, we would always be thankful for the finished work of the cross. The fact that we are saved and forgiven. And we belong to a kingdom that will last forever. So bless everyone here, Lord, as we go our way. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.